This is the Do It Scared podcast with Ruth Sukup, episode number 93. On today's episode, we're talking to bestselling author and motivational speaker, John O'Leary, about choosing to see the good, even in the darkest moments. Welcome to the Do It Scared podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Sukup, and each week on the show, we will talk about how to face your fears, overcome obstacles, and most importantly, how to take action and create a life you love. This episode is brought to you by Elite Blog Academy. And right now, we want to invite you to grab your copy of the newest edition of my best-selling book, How to Blog for Profit Without Selling Your Soul. This is the book that since 2013 has sold nearly 500,000 copies in more than 10 different languages. And now it has been completely updated and revised for 2020. Our goal at EBA is to get it into as many hands as we possibly can, which is why for a limited time, we will send it to you absolutely free. All you have to do is pay for shipping. To grab it, simply go to EliteBlogAcademy.com slash book. Once again, that's EliteBlogAcademy.com slash book. Hey there, and welcome back to the show. As always, my name is Ruth Sukup, and I'm the founder of Living Well, Spending Less, and the Living Well Planner, as well as the founder of Elite Blog Academy and the New York Times bestselling author of six books, including my newest book, Do It Scared. In today's episode, we're chatting with John O'Leary, who is a motivational speaker and the best-selling author of On Fire, which tells his own incredible story of defeating the odds. You see, at nine years old, John was severely burned on 100% of his body. No one expected him to survive the night, but he did. He then survived months in a hospital bed, dozens of surgeries, and years of therapy. Before his 10th birthday, he lost all of his fingers to amputation. But this was not the end. John's journey was just the beginning. And as he says, this tragedy actually gave him the greatest gift, realizing that no matter what happens to you, you always have the choice of how to respond. And ultimately, that's exactly what this podcast is all about. It's about learning how to face our biggest challenges head on and choosing to push past adversity so that we can create a life we love. Because in the end, courage doesn't mean we're never afraid. Instead, courage is being scared, but taking action anyway, despite our fear. It's putting one foot in front of the other, even when we're not quite sure where the path is going to lead. All right, so just a couple more quick things before we dive into today's episode. First, you can download the show notes for this episode and get the links to everything that we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about some pictures that you're probably going to want to see. You can get everything by visiting doitscared.com slash episode 93. Once again, that's doitscared.com slash episode 93. Also, if you haven't done this already, be sure to go over to doitscared.com to take your free fear assessment to find out exactly how fear might be showing up in your life and potentially holding you back, as well as to discover exactly what you can do about it. But now, without further ado, here is the very inspiring John O'Leary. Hey, John. Welcome to Do It Scared. I'm so glad to have you here today. Ruth, we are huge fans of yours, so it's an honor to be on your show. 
Oh, that's so sweet. I I get a little like cheery when I hear that. I I I don't know. That it just feels weird to have fans. I think that's a weird thing. It is a weird thing unless it's deserved. And so I think you're talking about stuff that matters. You're talking about stuff that affects all of us. And uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of people that need to be listening because many of us, if not all of us, are living every single day in fear. And then you remind us, you don't have to. You know, it's something we all deal with, but you don't have to stay there. It's true. It's true. And it's something I can't wait to dive in with you about. But I want to start just sort of at the beginning because you've got you've got a story to tell. So let's just start there. And I'm sure I'm sure you've told it enough times that you know exactly exactly how to tell it. So why don't you for my listeners who have not heard your story before, why don't you start there and tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are right now? Yeah, so I'll, I'll begin in a place you probably weren't expecting. But the answer to your question is I never told anybody my story until I was 27 years old. And wow. what happened was my mom and dad saw their son get married and they saw this little boy of theirs on the altar with the tuxedo marrying this gorgeous girl, brunette, brown eyes, great heart, just a beautiful girl named Beth. And they realized this terrible story that they had lived for the previous two decades had a happy ending. And so they wrote a little story. They printed 100 copies. I read it. And the, for the first time in my life, Ruth, I realized that the story they wrote about wasn't the terrible tragedy I had always thought it was, but it instead was this redemptive, beautiful, grace-filled, awesome story about life. And so that's what you're asking about now. Like, well, what is that story? Well, that, that story is that at age nine, I witnessed boys in my neighborhood playing with fire and gasoline. And these little guys would sprinkle gasoline on a sidewalk. They would stand back two feet, throw a match on top, and it would just jump to life. Kind of little boy behavior, actually. It's crazy, but it's what little boys do. And as a nine-year-old, I watched these older kids, and I figured if they can do it, so can I. So the following weekend, with my mom and dad gone, I walked into their garage, bent over a can of gasoline, lit a piece of cardboard on fire, tried to pour a little bit on top, and before the liquid came out, the fumes... That's the, that's the invisible stuff, but that's the explosive stuff too, came out, created a massive explosion. It launched me 20 feet against the far side of the garage, covered me in gasoline, set my body ablaze, but it also set the entire garage on fire. Oh my so that gosh. is the very first page of the story that's going to change the rest of my life. Wow. <laughs> wow. So then what happened? Like, keep going. Don't, don't leave <laughs> me hanging. Uh, more after these commercials. <laughs> no, so but back from the commercial break, here we are with Ruth and John O'Leary. Uh, what happened then is I got scared. I know we're taught and trained what to do when we're on fire. In class, everybody can respond. You stop and drop and you roll. But what do you do when you're scared? What do you do when fear kicks in? This is a topic you care deeply about. I, I think we turn to panic. And then we do probably the thing that's going to be most harmful. And so for me in this situation, I ran. I ran for my life, but I ran on fire through the garage, through the kitchen, through the family room, into the front hall, screaming for help, praying for a savior. Eventually, I see my brother Jim. He's 17. I'm nine. And as my brother Jim is approaching me, I'm thinking, you know, God, anybody else, not this guy. He can't do anything for me. This is my older brother. He's never done anything nice for me. And yet, Ruth, this was Jim's day to change. And I, when I follow your brand, I think this is what you teach others to do, to embrace where you are, but then to pivot where you want to go next. This was Jim's moment to completely pivot the complete trajectory of his life. He picked up a rug. 
He ran over to me, he beat down the flames. They were leaping three feet off of my body in all directions. Oh my gosh. So he's burning himself while he's doing this. But for him that day, it's not about him. And I think so much of our fear, if you will, just to kind of pull this back through, is, is about what might happen to us. Well, what if it's not about us? What, what if it's ultimately about what we can accomplish through our lives for a cause even greater than ourselves? And that's what my brother proved to me that day. He took a couple minutes in doing so, but he beat down those flames. He carried me outside. He ran back into a burning house, ushered my sisters out, runs back into a burning house, calls 911. 1987, the lifesaver of the year for the state of Missouri, was a 17-year-old pimple-faced, freckle-faced jerk of a brother named Jim O'Leary, who changed and who shined and who became my hero. And so... Jim is the reason why I was eventually able to be ushered onto an ambulance and taken to an emergency room. But then what? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. I just want to hear the story. <laughs> the wild thing the about our stories is everybody's got one and they just don't think theirs mm-hmm. is that important. Yeah. And so you're asking these questions and, and for the majority of my life, I, I would have yawned in, re, in response. And now I recognize, man, I need to roar. I need to celebrate what happens next because it's so beautiful. It's so life-filled and it's not about me. So I, I get bored when people are saying, John, tell us about the great things you've accomplished. Like for me, that's quite boring. But when I can brag about, about my brother, man, I will do that all day long. Or my sisters, we can come back to them all day long. But now we're going to pivot to my mom and dad because we can talk about these guys all day long. In the emergency room that day, I'm, I'm by myself, Ruth, and I'm, I'm naked, no clothes, no skin. I'm burned on 100% of my body. 87% was third degree. It's a complete death sentence. And as a nine-year-old boy in that room, the only thought I had that morning was, oh my gosh, uh, my dad <laughs> is going to freaking kill me when he finds out. My father's going to be irate. I blew up his house. He's going to kill me. Kind of, kind of an ordinary childlike So thought. you're still conscious through all oh, of this. Oh, yeah. And, and not only that, but these are my memories. So they're not like wow. told to me secondhand. These, I remember distinctly. The explosion, my brother's behavior, the ride to the hospital, my father's reaction, my thoughts as I was waiting for them. All of this is mine. Completely. So you're just in shock at this point because you're so badly burned. It's a good question. I actually don't somehow think I was in shock. I think if I had been in shock, I would not remember it. But the fact that I remember it tells me, and I think the physicians listening and the nurses and the people who know medicine better than I, uh, somehow this kid was not in shock. He was still completely aware, which... In some regards, like what a nightmare. But if you look at it through the proper lens, like what a blessing. I I remember this. I remember what my brother did and what he risked. I remember what my dad's face looked like as he approached. And I remember what he said. And what what he said was, John, look at me when I'm talking to you. So for me, I'm, I'm done. I look up at my dad and then he goes, I have never been so proud of anybody in my entire life. And my little buddy today, this morning, I am proud to be your dad. And then he goes, John, I love you. I love you. I love you. Ruth as a nine-year-old. I crossed my arms. I shut my eyes and thought to myself, oh my gosh, nobody told my dad what happened. You know what? <laughs> the old dude doesn't know, man. This 41-year-old old man has no clue. I burnt down his house Could while he was at work talk? this morning. And yet you laugh and I laugh and everybody listening laughs, I hope, because they recognize, of course he knew. My dad knew, but that day he also recognized what matters. And I, I think frequently we focus on the stuff that doesn't. And then we're surprised when we're, we're just inundated with so much fear because we're focused on the stuff that doesn't matter, that may never arrive in our life, or at least in our sphere of control. 
my dad that morning focused on what mattered and what he could control, his interaction with his boy. That's it. Nothing more. He can't control tomorrow, but he can control the way he interacted with me. And his love that day, I think, changed our pathway forward. It did not make five months in hospital easier, years of surgery easy. I think his love made the journey possible. And, you know, fear and love are vying for our attention every day of our lives. And my dad, I'm sure, stepped in with a lot of anxiety and fear, but he chose love. And things like this cascade, they spread, they go viral. And in a news media cycle where we love sharing all the bad stuff, at least for a moment, my dad was sharing good stuff. And I, I think that's what your show does. That's what that's what we try to do with the Live Inspired Network. We try to share positivity and remind people they can control what they have focus on. So, okay, so let me back up a little bit more because I still need to get like the nitty gritty details of this story. Uh, like, and I think it's am- like you've clearly, it was a long time ago. You were nine, you're not nine anymore. And you've had a lot of time to reflect and get the lessons and kind of like see all the good that has come out of this part of your life. But I want to go like back into the actual like nitty gritty of this this happening. You're nine years old. You're completely burned on your entire body. A hundred percent of your body is burned. 87% third degree burns. You have basically a zero chance of survival at that point, right? Can you, but you're, you're fully conscious. This is the part that is freaking me out that you're fully conscious. Could you feel Mm. things like, would you, did you have pain receptors? That's such a good, that is a really good question. I've never been asked that outside of the medical world. So what I'll tell you is I'll send you pictures from this time. We have a picture from the emergency room, believe it or not, from the day of, because I would imagine some of your listeners right now are thinking, oh, you know what? hundred percent. I don't know if I believe that. Well, go to the website, check it out and uh, test, test hundred percent burn, 87% third degree in 2020. When we are playing this, there's almost no likelihood of a child like this surviving. So 33 years ago, it, it really is a miracle story. And back to your question. Yes, I was the one aware. Yes, I was not in shock. And yes, I did feel pain. But with burns, the way it works is third degree burns, you don't actually feel pain until your pain receptors return as the skin begins to heal through skin grafting. So for me, oh. the majority of the pain was not on the 87%. It was on the 13%, my face, upper chest, oh. my legs. Uh, and I had a headache that I can still feel today. Like, I, man, it was an intense, intense headache that was even overshadowing and shadowing the pain that I felt on my body. So that, that's wow. what I remember most. So about the, the headache, pain. where did the, where did the headache come from? Gosh, it could be so many things the, the dramatic change to your body, the heat, and then the cool, because your body not only it, it controls your temperature. And so not yeah. only was I heated up drastic, I was on fire for three minutes, but then after that, I started freezing, mm. almost going to hypothermia. So just yeah. the drastic change there, the explosion being blasted 20 feet. You watch an NFL game on a Sunday uh. and you see these guys get rocked two or three feet. And that's, traumatic well yeah. 20 feet against the far side of the garage so did you have a concussion or anything so i'm sure that was concussed i'm sure that part was part of, of the headache as well yeah oh my gosh okay so i'm just trying to like wrap my head around this entire thing so you can you're not even feel you're not even feeling it because you're so badly injured that you're not even feeling it you think you're fully conscious could you talk <laughs> yeah i could talk so they tricked me that evening and then i had a trach in for the next three or four months so then i could not talk but for wow. that first day in ER, I could. Wow. And even part of that, the beauty is um, I'm having a conversation with my dad, like a real conversation, real, which a child does not always have with 
a parent at any age. But what a gift to no. have that at age nine. And then right behind my dad came my mom and she walked right over to me, Ruth, and took my hand in hers. My hand is a mess. I eventually have my fingers amputated on both hands. But she picks up my warm hand, holds it in hers with both her hands. Then she starts patting back my fo- like the hair that would have been around my forehead. And she says to me, I love you. And in my own words, I say back to her, mom, knock it off with the love. Am I going to die? And I assumed she would say, baby, you're fine. We're going to get you out here today. We're going to swing you by stick and shake and get you a milkshake, you know? Chocolate <laughs> or vanilla, baby, which one? Yeah, that's what you're expecting totally. to hear. Because <laughs> that's what a good parent does. Because you had no idea how bad it was. She had heard whispers already. And I think, uh, you know, when, you're, when your listeners go to your website and check out the pictures, I think they'll see for themselves how, how dramatic this is. Uh, but instead of giving me like false hope, I think she gave me something even more important, which is truth and accountability and ownership. Even she looked back at me as a nine year old boy. And I hear her say, baby, look at me. Do you want to die? Because it's your choice now. It's not mine. Hmm. And that's like bold. So I look back at my mother and I say, mama, I do not want to die. I want to live. And her response was good, baby. Good. Then look at me. You take the hand of God. You walk the journey with him and you fight like you never fought before. Your father and I will be with you every step along the way. But baby, you got to choose. You got to want this thing. Wow. And she gave me like an example. Like she's like, you know, when you're on the soccer field and you're really chasing that ball, that's how bad you got to want this thing. And so for me as a nine-year-old, I understood that example. And so I uh, almost gamified this journey forward to like pursue the goal of life, of recovery, of going home to the same way I used to feel about going after that little soccer ball. Wow. So I, as like, as a mom of a 10 year old, so almost the same (laughs) age, like I, I feel it from your mom's perspective of just the thought of looking at your child, knowing that this is a, this is a death sentence and you're talking and having this conversation. I mean, what was that? Has she talked about that? Like, what was that like for her? Totally. So her story is fascinating. And when you're ready to have a, a real interview, bring Susan O'Leary on, you'll be blown away by this woman. And I'm serious. At age 27, when I read her book, that's partially what changed my life. It was twofold. I mentioned uh, my story, which is half of it. But the other side of it, the yin and the yang, is I never once thought about what my mom and dad went through. Never. Why would I? I was the one that got my fingers amputated. I'm the one that has to walk with a limp and people stare at me. Poor me was my perspective. And then they helped me see, wow, your story is a gift. Don't, don't apologize for it. Celebrate your scars. That was a gift. But the other side of that is, wow, look what they went through. What's it like to be a mother who can't sleep for five months? What's it like to be a father who wonders, even though we got him home, will he ever be accepted? What's it like to raise a kid who doesn't go off to the high school dances? I mean, what's, what, what is that like for them? I know my story, but gosh, a parent's pain is, it takes whatever pain a child feels and it multiplies it by 10x. And so their, their story is so tragic and so re- in some respects, but it's so redemptive, so beautiful, so full of people showing up in their life and then them choosing their next step forward to guide this little kid, his five siblings and the entire family unit forward together. So it's re- wow. it, it is a beautiful story. So they're heroes for sure. They are my heroes. And so, you know, you and I are on video right now right, while your listeners are listening but behind me is a wall of my kids, my wife, my grandparents, but right in the middle, my parents. They, they remain, even today, my heroes. They're 75 and 74, but those are my heroes. Wow, that's awesome. That's, I mean, so tell me, was there anything specifically that they 
did for you because you have you have this first day where you're not feeling anything and you can talk and then there's five months of pain and misery and surgeries and skin grafts and basically a living hell like you survive against every odd that's out there and then and then you're nine years old and you're i mean i think about my my 10 year old and she literally has no grit and no persistence. (laughs) I mean, I'm trying as a mom, but she's got nothing. Like if something like that would happen to her at right now, she would be like, uh, yes. Like how, like what did your, like how, how did you deal with that? And what did your parents like, did, were they, was there something there that was helping you stay motivated and stay stronger? Did you grow, have to grow up really quickly? What, how, what was that like? So I will answer your questions and I'll begin though by speaking for your sweet daughter and every daughter and son listening (laughs) to your podcast right now. I think none of us are prepared for the storm and then it arrives. And then a few days, a few weeks, a few decades later, we look back and we're like, damn, I I seriously cannot believe I got through that thing, that divorce, that bankruptcy, that cancer about losing a child, uh, losing a parent, having my parents go through a divorce, pick your poison of the day. None of us have the grit to survive it. And then we do. And then we do. And, and so for our generation that we're raising, for those of you who are parents, because I have four of my own, the challenge with our success is that we might be stealing from them the opportunity to grow through adversity. So when you're, the water bottles are always made before they go for soccer practice, and if they forget it, we'll drive it up there because we don't want them thirsty. I think we are also taking away from them an opportunity to grow in a little bit of grit. So I'm speaking primarily mm-hmm. to the guy in the mirror. I would agree. But every with one that. of us should listen <laughs> yes. from your own perspective because if you're taking away the adversity, you're taking away a true gift. And so I certainly dealt with some adversity as a child that I was completely ill-equipped for. My parents, they were an upper middle class Midwestern couple who had never been through anything, anything at all. No job displacement, nothing, no health diagnosis, nothing. So they weren't ready for this either. But they did have a strong faith. They do have a strong community. They love one another. And they were committed to that love even during the difficult times. And so from from their perspective, I think it always remained around what they could control and where they were going next. They knew we were going to go home. They didn't know how long that was going to take, how many medical experts we needed, how many bags of blood we would need, how much we'd need to raise financially. All I knew is where this thing was going to go. We're going home. And so the message they knew is one they also verbalized to me and to the staff there's a term called expectancy. It's this idea that you ultimately get what you expect. Mm -hmm. And if you are expecting to die, don't be surprised when that arrives. When you expect your husband to come home in a bad mood or that you're always going to be single, you're always going to be wanting another drink of alcohol, whatever the thing is, don't be surprised when that very thing you don't want to see happen shows up in your life. And so for mom mom and dad, not only were they holding one another accountable, they told the doctor, my boy's going to survive. They told every staff member, they told the media who would pay attention and those who would not, that this kid's going to survive. And because of their demands and others, people started to believe that mom and dad might be right. They may not know the first thing about burn care, but they might be right in this one case. And so for me as a little guy, I knew I was going to go home. We, we marked a date on the calendar early in. They talked about it every day. They'd say 164 more days, 163 more days, baby. It was like a movement toward... Wow. A huge goal. And they just and picked so, an arbitrary date, basically? They had a little bit of knowledge at that point. They knew about how many skin grafts we would need. We mm-hmm. needed a week of recovery between each one. So they picked a number about five months out. They circled it on a calendar, and they gave me this slow countdown. Wow. So I, I think 
tracking steps along the way to success, whatever that means for all of you. Gosh, it's such a gift. And even as it gets reset a little bit, whether it's around weight loss or financial goal or whatever it might be, you can reset it a little bit, but you got to know ultimately where it's going. Yeah. Yeah. So you talked about how you didn't really start to see this as a gift until you were 27. You didn't start, you never talked about your story. It wasn't, you weren't a motivational speaker, apparently. Like this wasn't part, really part of your adult experience is talking about this story and talking about this turning point moment in your life until you were 27 years old. So did you have, did you, I mean, was there a point where you felt sorry for yourself? Was there a point where you didn't look at it as, as some amazing story mm. or in your life? Was it something that you just wanted to forget? I mean, and oh I, gosh. like, I have so many questions. So I'll let you answer that one before I go into the next one. Well, that's such a good one. And it's such a big one. And we'll need a whole podcast for <laughs> that one. But 20 years of hiding and hiding means when I was coming back to school right after being burned, so I was out for a year, came back about a year later. And uh, one of the very first things I did, I started participating in soccer. I could barely stand, but I, I'm a soccer player. So I'm out there with three layers of sweatpants and gold shorts on top of the red. I, it was the goofiest looking figurine you can fathom. And there's this little kid named John O'Leary pretending like he's normal. And I think that can be a gift to get back to normalcy. But it can also be a great lie that you believe that is actually not healthy. So I, I had a friend who recently lost a child, uh, a teenage child, and four days later was back at work. And um, I think we all have to grieve in our own timing. But I also think there's some wisdom in in mourning and punching holes in drywall and anger. And like there's there's time, there's seasons of life. And of that season of my life, I was pretending like I was like everybody else mm -hmm. when I really wasn't. And it's something I did, Ruth, for the rest of my life. And so in high school, I self-medicated through humor and drinking and partying, trying to be the life of the party everywhere I went, anywhere I went as frequently as I could get there. And I did that in college, too. I graduated in four, but not because of my uh, academic prowess. I just <laughs> kind of stumbled my way through four years of college. And it really wasn't until mom and dad put a little baby book in front of me talking about their life story. And I saw a picture of a little burnt up boy in the front of it. And then on the back page, I saw this beautiful brunette named Elizabeth Grace, who I somehow ended up marrying. That I realized, wow, this, this thing I self-medicated from and hid from and covered up and tried to pretend like it never happened is the very single thing that I should be owning, embracing, celebrating, learning from, and then sharing. Wow. So that, like, that's a radical change to go from never, ever, ever talking about it to being willing to go on someone's podcast and talk a little bit about it, to be willing to go in front of <laughs> audiences and, and talk about it, to be willing to write books about it and talk about it. It is. And it's amazing. It's, I mean, I think it's really incredible when you think about it too, because I think m most people have something in their past that either they're not talking about or they're resentful of, or they feel like poor me about, you know, whether you want to yeah. admit it or not, you know, your parents didn't get along or they got divorced when you were little, or you were a, the nerd in school and you got picked on by the, by the mean girls or whatever, whatever yeah. it is. Like we all have our own cross to bear when it comes down to it. And I think it's really interesting to think about how it doesn't matter if it's years later, if that's something that's been holding you back in your life there, you can always choose to change your perspective on it mm. and to, to reframe 
how to reframe how it affects you because that clearly was a huge turning point for you and it's changed your whole life, right? So a, a cool exercise for all of us <laughs> might be, yeah. it's something I, so I do a lot of like leadership speaking. Sometimes it's in front of like 25,000 people at a big stadium. Other times it's in front of 12 CEOs, but my favorite group is actually inmates. So we do, we do a fair amount of work within our prison system. And uh, with these guys, it's primarily men, but with these guys, I'll ask the question, get, make a list of things you're grateful for. I think gratitude matters. Make a list of things you're grateful for, specifically for being in prison. And so I'll give that, that, that that's the question. Then I'll share the story about my dad and how he makes lists every single morning of things he's grateful for because of his Parkinson's disease which has taken his job. It's taken his money. He's got no money. It's taken his ability to drive, to walk, to speak. He's got nothing. And yet every single day, the man starts his day by looking at the sun rising to the east saying, what am I grateful for today because of the worst? That's a, that's a cool exercise. Wow. So I did this uh, at Fort Leavenworth in Kansas. Like, these guys are never coming out. It's a federal prison. They're, they're lifers. I played Amazing Grace on the piano as they're reflecting for three minutes. This dude's got no fingers, but I'm playing the piano for these inmates. Finish afterwards. And I said, okay, guys, who's who wants to share their list? You know, and believe it or not, nobody raised their hand. And then eventually one guy puts his hand up and he goes, oh, the hell with it, I'll share. So he raises his hand and he, he stands. I make everybody applaud. So all these guys are applauding this one offender. And then he says, I'll read it to you guys. And he looks down at the paper and reads, not one damned thing. That's what I'm grateful for, John. And then he sits down and everybody laughs. So uh, in counseling, you learn the question. Uh, the question is anybody else. It like immediately pivots. So I, I immediately say, hey, anybody else. Thank you for that share, but anybody else. Not quite what I was looking for. Not at all what I was looking for, Ruth. And, and after a moment pause, a guy in the farthest row, he had sandy, orange, rusty hair, raised his hand high. I call on him. And he says, John, I'll share. So this is Fort Leavenworth. It's July. It's it's a miserable setting. These guys are never coming out. This guy's reading his list of things he's grateful for, for being in Fort Leavenworth for the rest of his life. And here's the list. He said, um, John, I am grateful for heat in the winter, air in the summer, three square meals, a soft bed, a cool roommate finally, running water, hot showers, library access, internet access once a week. And he went on and on and on. At one point he talked about redemption, forgiveness, forgive himself, forgiving his parents. Like this guy went through a list of things he's grateful for, wow. for being locked behind bars the rest of his life. And when he, when he sat, Ruth, the entire room of lifelong offenders rose to their feet and applauded. Wow. A man who was able to look at a mistake, you referred to it earlier as a cross, and you said everybody's got one. I totally agree with that. Through the lens of grateful optimism. This will not take away whatever offense he did that got him locked up. It will not mean he's free to walk tomorrow. It will not bring back a child for someone who's lost a kid, or it won't grow back my fingers or give me back full function in my body. But the way we choose to look at our past will influence how we also look at our future. And so if you want to remain a victim to what happened yesterday, have at it. But just recognize it will influence how you show up today, tomorrow, and for the rest of your life. Wow. That's powerful. Really, really, really powerful. So you have said, you said in your book that if you were given the choice, <laughs> you would do it all over again. Can you explain that? <laughs> so as soon as you started framing that question up, I thought you might be might be going there. <laughs> I know it's so um, 
it's so kind of countercultural. So you and I are on the on the uh, the video Skype chat right now, and you can see scars on the left side of my face. When I fix the headset, you can see a guy's got no fingers on his hands. I've got scars from my neck to my toes. I'm in physical pain every day. Um, and my life span will probably be shorter than most guys who grew up where I grew up with the, with, with what I grew up with. It's just the, the realities I face. It's pretty easy then to say, well, why would you not decide to blow out the flame? Like, why would you go through five months in hospital and years of surgery and therapy and a lifetime of challenges? Why in the world would you do that? That's a very good question. So for me, the reason I would not go and blow out the flame of my childhood is because that's actually what brought our family together. It is what allowed us to grow in character as a family, as a community. It changed our entire region. It was a big deal. I got a, a letter from boxes of letters every day, Ruth, from around the country and around the world. Uh, President Reagan back in the day wrote that he and Nancy were praying for us. A guy named Pope John Paul II wrote that he was praying for John and his family. It brought this region together for a cause bigger than themselves. Tragedy can do this. It can divide, but frequently tragedy unites what a gift it can become if we view it as such. It led me to strength of faith. It led to grit, which you're longing for for your 10-year-old. You don't want it to get burned, but I'm telling you right now, adversity can be a gift. It certainly led to gift in my life, which led, I think, for a little boy to believe he could start his own business and then another business and then go on a stage and share a story, have the audacity to ask this beautiful girl on a date. And then when she says, you're like a brother to me, uh, take a big swallow and ask her on a, on a date a couple of months later, do it again and again and again so she can no longer say no. So. <laughs> resiliency can be a beautiful thing, but it's got to be developed frequently through difficulty. And so I look at my, even you and I having this conversation right now, the reason why we're talking is not because, John, tell us about your vacation last summer to Ireland. I heard it was awesome. Like, no, that's boring. John, tell us about getting burned. What was that like for your mom? Did it separate your parents? It actually was a difficulty. How do your kids, your siblings feel about this? Well, that's a real story right there too. All these things actually brought us together and have kept us together. And that's a story we're talking about. It's also a life worth living. So the story was hard. It remains hard. But it's a story I'm incredibly grateful for today. Hmm. That's amazing. That's amazing. And I I actually told – I do get that. And having – you know, I obviously have not experienced anything like the amount of the physical trauma or anything like that. And, but within my own story, there's a lot of hard, hard stuff too. And I, and well, I wouldn't wish it on anyone. I also wouldn't change. I wouldn't change right. it. I wouldn't change. I think, cause I think you, you can't choose to go back and do it over again. Obviously nobody gets that choice, but I wouldn't change it. Um, because it has it every, every step and every hard thing leads to, leads to all the good stuff that without the bitter, there's no sweet. Wow, that's awesome. That, that is well said. <laughs> it's like I'm a writer or something. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you do for a living, you should keep doing should that because I think I, it's maybe, working. Yeah, I'll, I'll get right on that. <laughs> so so you talk, one of, one of the things you talk about is the concept of an inflection point, a moment in time that changes everything afterward. And I think that this is a really important concept. I'd love to hear a little bit more from you about what this, what you mean by this, why it matters, and how somebody else can recognize this in their own life. So sometimes when we do coaching, we, we have people go back through their life and identify moments in time that change what happens next. So maybe your fifth birthday when your dad forgot to come home 
Like he, he went to the bar with his buddy. Like, boom, it falls down from there. And then when your parents split and then it falls down from there. And then you find love in high school. It doesn't stay that way, but like it made you realize, you know what? I can get through this. And so these inflection points that change everything that happens afterwards. For me, it's days like being born. You know, I, obviously being burned. Obviously coming home from the hospital. Obviously. There's a cool story about a guy named Jack Buck who's a radio announcer for the St. Louis Cardinals. I don't think you and I have time today to unpack it. It's one of the most remarkable, loving stories I've ever heard. And to be on the receiving end of that love continues to stun me. But one of the commitments Jack made was when I get out of the hospital, he would have John O'Leary Day at the ballpark. Wow. Like un- unfathomable that a guy who was basically in charge of the St. Louis Cardinals baseball team would have a whole day in my honor. That's a worthy goal. And so when we actually lived into it on August 26th, that same summer, that's an inflection point. Some of them are huge days. Others are seemingly insignificant. Uh, where you went to high school, ultimately, where you, what fraternity you chose to rush doesn't seem like a big deal, except you meet this one guy who's going to introduce you to his friend from grade school, who's going to eventually become your wife. It's like inflection points. They're little moments in time. And I think too frequently, we chalk them up as chance. And I, I just encourage folks to recognize the grandeur in the moments of time. D- don't wish it away. Don't wish away your kids' diapers experience. And, you know, we, we, we wish away so many of our days rather than celebrating them and owning them as, as the, the inflection points for good that they can become. Wow. I love that. So let's talk a little bit about your wife. <laughs> All day, man. I'm, I'm ready. I, I'm, I'm <laughs> 17 years with her and I'm still wild about her today. 17 years. That's awesome. So you had a fear that you would never, that you'd never get married, that no one woman would ever want to hold your hand or do life with you. So how did, how did that all come about? So the fear came about because I have no fingers. I have scars. I'm (laughs) radically different than any other little boy that you go to cotillion with or high school dances or college fraternity parties. So that was the fear. How did it come about? It's a cool story. And I think in short, in honor of your your, uh, listeners' time today, seeing a girl, not only for being the physical, beautiful lady that she is, I think my wife, Beth O'Leary, is the most pretty girl I've ever met. And as a speaker, I I have the honor of going to big audiences almost every day, sharing my story, meeting people in book lines afterwards, hugging people, meeting celebrities. I don't know anybody prettier than my wife. And her heart is even better than that. Every woman listening is melting right What's now. That's true. I mean, Google <laughs> her and then you'll you'll be jealous too. I mean, she's unbelievable. And she <laughs> it gets prettier every day I get to know her. So like it's it's an unusual deal, but I think what I saw was not the the high cheekbone structure or these pretty puffy lips or whatever else. I, I saw this heart. And um real be- you know, the, the outer beauty phase. We age, we gain weight, we get wrinkled. Life happens, man, life happens except on the inside. And that's where it's ultimately going to reflect on the outside. Her heart is good. It is pure. She's humble. She's humble. She, uh, she doesn't think she's pretty, which I think is so attractive. She doesn't think she's that well put together, like mentally. She's just like always running, but she's so put together. That's the reason I'm able to do the amount of work that I'm able to do is because my wife is so structured and so accomplished in her own right. So I think I saw within her what she did not yet even see within herself. And I think she saw within me that same, but she was my friend first and I was her friend first. And although I wanted more, she always said no. And her response was like, you're you're like a brother to me. So we remained brother and sisters for a long time. And the turning point, Ruth, and I think this is so healthy for your audience to listen to, I hope, 
I stopped pursuing her for uh, romantic reasons. <laughs> and we could unpack what that means. But as a young man, 22 years old, man, <laughs> I just stopped that nonsense. And I started only pursuing her for love's interest, like to pour into her, to give to her. And like, now I'm not trying to get anything from her anymore. And I kind of turned my back a little bit toward that, that original desire. And I just was, I really was her brother for a while. I really was her friend. And I think in that she saw something within myself that she'd not seen before, like a maturity, a self-confidence, a guy who can stand on his own legs without needing somebody else to lean against, Hmm. which is so frequently why we choose to get together with anybody. Because we, you know, the Jerry Maguire, you, you complete me, you complete. And it's like, oh man, she won't complete you, Jerry. And he won't, com- it's not going to work like that. <laughs> so you, you cannot be completed by somebody else in my humble estimation. You've got to be fairly firmly co- complete uh, in your faith, like spiritually, emotionally, mentally, physically, even financially, and then reach out to somebody else and say, come on, let's do life together. Let's do life together. And then it's not half plus half might equal one. Now we can start working with multiples. And so I, I stopped pursuing her as a love interest and started pursuing her as a friend. And I think she found that incredibly attractive. Eventually, she asked me out, which I could always hold up for her head. Like, hey, you're the one asking me out. Don't blame this fight on me. So uh, th- that's the, uh, the short version of our love story. I love that. I, so good. So sweet. And, and such a... And so true, honestly, it's, you have to have that, you have to love yourself really and be confident in yourself before you can, before you can really truly have a great relationship with someone else. For sure. And and for those of us who have lost a relationship or a marriage, what an awesome opportunity to go to a park bench by yourself and just kind of look up, take notes, bring a journal, meditate, pray, reflect, listen to great podcasts like this one. And figure out who you are, what turns you off, what turns you on, become whole again, and then go back out there and say, I'm, now I'm ready. Because I, I think we frequently then quickly pivot from one broken relationship into the next. And we wonder why I want to get better, why I want to get better. And I think we ultimately must get better first. And then, and then life gets better, relationships get better, our impact professionally gets better. So true. So true. So we're going to have to wrap up in a few minutes, but I want to hear a little bit. I heard you took our fear assessment. So I want to hear a little bit about what your fear archetype is and how you like what you thought about that, first of all, and how you think that has played out in your life. So So let me begin by saying your assessment's (laughs) awesome. So for your listeners, if you've not yet taken it, take it. Even going, if the assessment forgot to kick out a response, I think you got your, I think you got value by identifying yourself. So uh, that's awesome. I am a rule follower. Ooh, rule follower. Huh? Which surprises me to be honest, because I'm known among my friends as being the guy who like makes his own parking spots. <laughs> right? like, and I mean like craziness. So uh, I, I think what that means though, is I, I do like things done within the lines. Interesting. You know, I, I frequently live life within the lines yeah. and I think your assessment picked up on that regarding me. And I think everything's got a place and I think it's important to be on time. Uh, and so in those regards, I'm totally a rule follower. Do you like structure, like having a path to follow and a kind of a set of guidelines for how to, how to get something done? So it's the strangest thing. So yes and no, I <laughs> hate rules. I hate structure. Yeah. I hate all, being on time. I hate a watch. I don't like cell phones. I don't like any of it. And yet by being married to who I'm married to, 
with the agendas that we have, with the crazy calendar that I have, with the great team that I have working with us at Live Inspired, they have kept me to an incredible structure. And because of that structure, we're thriving. And so although individually I may choose uh, to lazily lay on a bench all day long, like that, that's my style right there, man. Even when the cop comes by three times and he says, you got to get off this bench. Well, I'm not going to listen. I'm not a rule follower. <laughs> the, the reality is when I follow rules, we can rock and roll as a couple, as a family, and as a business. Interesting. Interesting. So I wonder if the if your answers reflected the fact that you realize how useful rules and structure have been in your life. It, honestly, I when you take assessments, it's always a little risky. Like, am I taking an assessment mm-hmm. out of honesty? Am mm-hmm. I taking it for what I wish it was? Am I taking it for how I want it to be? Mm-hmm. What I think my wife might think of? Like, so when you take it, it's always hard to take an assessment authentically from your heart. It's very true. So I, I, honestly, true. as I look at it, questions and answers, I, I'm always like, which one am I a one or a five? Like, I'm really struggling <laughs> with this one. Which one? <laughs> It's true. It's true because you have to, it's almost, I tell people you almost have to take it just as fast as possible without overthinking it because an answer, honestly, like this is, oh yeah, this is me. This is me without thinking about, well, is this the right answer? Is this the answer I want to be answering? Because then yeah, you'll, you'll skew it that way. So what's next for you, John? What you working on? So I'm going to meet my wife later on today. We're going to have a coffee. It's our hot date. So we're going to have a coffee here in about an hour before the kids get back from school. (laughs) Besides that, I'm working on a second book. It's called In Awe. What I've noticed as a speaker is I travel around, primarily speak to adult audiences. And when I ask questions, not a whole lot of hands go up. When I have them turn to neighbors, it's this awkward, like, oh, crap, here we go. And so I'll turn awkwardly. When we talk about innovation and creativity and how how does the left side of the politics get along with the right side? None of this is happening. Then you go to schools and you ask a group of kids questions and every hand pops up. How many of you are artists? How many of you are going to change the world? Every hand comes up. How How many of you think the world is a good place? Every hand pops up. How many of you think it's getting better? Every hand goes up. Wow. And they think they're part of the solution. They think they can get around uh, get around the issues of life. If they see something they don't understand, like a guy who's got no fingers, rather than awkwardly covering up the eyes of themselves and running the other direction, they ask. And then once they know, they're like, oh, you want to be friends? And it's a really wonderful way to go through life as if uh, we can actually get along with everybody else, as if we can actually choose optimism over negativity and fear. And so kids have this. And so I'm teaching people in the, in the next book how to return to a childlike mindset. I love so, that. Totally, Truly. totally, totally fired up about in awe. So yeah. you know, like, maybe I can come back and talk more about yes, it. Yes, we should talk about that because that is definitely a whole episode all on its own. And I, you know, I was just, I was just doing a coaching session with my um, coaching program group yesterday and we were talking about goals for goals for 2020 and how to plan out your year and set your goals for the year. And one of the things that I get asked a lot is, well, what if I don't have any goals or how do I know that I, if I have any good goals or Hmm. I feel like I'm always setting goals that I think I'm supposed to do, but not, I don't really feel like I have anything that I want to do. Hmm. And what I think and what I find and find with adults, like the older we get, the less of that magic we still have. You know, when you're in your teens and your twenties, you think like, yeah, I can do everything. I'm going to, I'm going to conquer the world. I'm going to rule the world. And then real life sets in and you realize life is hard and I can't do everything. And you start to self edit and you censor, you censor yourself and you censor your dreams and you censor 
all of the possibilities that are out there. And I think that there has to be some sort of happy medium. Yes, as adults, we know that not everything under the sun is necessarily possible, but there's a lot more that's possible than we're even allowing ourselves permission to dream about. So, so, so chapter, I love it. chapter I love it. five <laughs> is about possible. And I go through some of these stories that you will not believe have been accomplished because people refuse to believe that they weren't possible. And whether it's little stuff or big stuff, putting the man on the moon when we'd never safely gotten a person into space get them to the moon and back by the end of the, the, this, the decade. Like that is a crazy, ridiculous, impossible in quotes dream until Armstrong repeat, you know, one str- small step for man, it happens. And so one of the things we have to do in our marriages and our singleness and our relationships and our political system and our lives is to stop playing small. And one of the best ways to do so is to return to the childlike mindset because ki- kids Kids aren't playing small. They're thinking about how do we get rid of 100% of the waste in the world? How do we get rid of poverty? And then you and I are like, well, crap. I don't know if I can even go to their party because I don't know anybody there anymore. I I guess I'll (laughs) stay home tonight. And we we play so small. And so I just encourage us to play play as big as you would have when you were five. Oh, you and me. We are right there. Like, dude, let's go. I'm like, (laughs) I'm pretty passionate about this because wherever you want to sit on a political spectrum, we won't make the world better until we dream about a better world together. And that, that last piece is important together. This is one world, man. It's true. It's true. I love it. I love it. All right. So I have a question that I ask every single person that comes on the podcast. Um, it's a really good one. So think hard about it. <laughs> My favorite color is blue. <laughs> nope. That's not it. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received mm. and why? So I hope we can date again on some podcasts and really unpack the reason for this. But I had a radio Hall of Fame announcer named Jack Buck who came into my life when I was one day post-burn. So I'm laying in the hospital, but I'm dying. Can't move, can't see because my eyes are swollen shut and I can't speak because of a trach, but I can hear. And the voice of the St. Louis Cardinals baseball, like this is the voice I listen to every day of my childhood, comes into my room and says to me, kid, wake up. You are going to live. You are going to survive. Keep fighting. John O'Leary, date the ballpark. We'll make it all worthwhile. See you soon. On the walkout that day, he's told that the little boy is going to die. And the following day, in spite of that news, he comes back and he visits me again. I'm a stranger to him, but he comes back a second time, then a third time for five straight months, Ruth. And this guy pours into me for the next 15 years of my life before he passes away. And so that the story is great and there's a lot more to it. But the reason why Jack did what he did as a radio announcer, as a Hall of Famer, as a philanthropist, and as a servant, as a spouse, as a father of eight, it's all these jobs he did. He's a war hero. He's a Purple Heart recipient from the Battle of the Bulge. He did all these cool things. The question he asked every night, and this is the best advice I've ever received, the question he asked every night was, what more can I do? And then he would just journal on that. Wow. And I... I'm telling you right now, it's a question I've been asking myself for six years. It has led to strength in my marriage, uh, validation and growth in my faith, growth in my finances, changed our business. It's made me a better son. It's definitely made me a better dad. I think it's made me a better friend. It's made me a better volunteer because I want to do the majority of things I'm doing today, like in the community. If I hadn't the night before, I said, well, maybe I can make that call or show for that one meeting, or raise my hand one more time, or give a little bit more financially. So if I could give your audience not only one bit of advice, but really a challenge from this podcast, it would be to answer the question nightly, nightly, what more can I do? Answer it, wash, repeat, watch what happens in 2020. 
I love that. Boom. Drop the mic right there. <laughs> that is, it's, that's powerful. I'm like, I gotta, I gotta write that down. <laughs> it is so honestly, it is so powerful. It is free. You don't need to pay me to get it. You need to buy a 92 cent journal or a cocktail napkin, a cheap pen or a pencil. Answer, go. Right. Repeat, answer, go. What Repeat. more can I do? So good. All right, John, anything else? Any final words that you want to leave us with? And then where can we find you online? <laughs> uh, final words. Many times during speeches, I'll sh- share this. I'll share it with your audience. I love you. There's nothing you can do about it. It's a pretty <laughs> hilarious uh, message when you have your audience members turn to strangers and share that. But it is how I go through life. So when I saw your pretty face show up, like the very first thing I said to myself is, I love you. There's nothing you can do about it. But I didn't say it aloud because that's weird. <laughs> But before this interview began, Ruth, I said that, and I, it opens me up to you. That's and when awesome. you and I finish, I have a quick meeting down the hall. Then I'm going to go home. I'm going to love my wife. Then I'm going to love my four kids. I'm going to catch a flight out. I'm going to go through TSA. And the first thing I'll say to that officer is, I love you. There's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> to the barista, I love you. There's nothing you can do about it. And it has this way of radically changing the conversation that unfolds That's afterwards. Awesome. So I will say that to your audience, ladies, gentlemen, paying attention at home. I love you. There is nothing you can do about it. If you want to stay in touch and learn more about that love, uh, I have a cool podcast. It's called Live Inspired Live Inspired with John O'Leary. So the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary comes out once a week. I interview people that I respect, like astronauts and teachers and artists and kids who are doing amazing things. So these are just ordinary people who are showing the rest of us, Ruth, that nothing That's is impossible. Awesome. Nothing is impossible. So we, we have that podcast. I have a website called johnolearyinspires.com. And we got a current book out called On Fire. So the book itself tells many of the stories that you and I talked about today. Awesome. Thank you so much, John. And of course, we will link to all of that in our show notes. So be sure to check that out. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ruth. Keep doing good good work. You keep doing good work. (laughs) Keep following your your good work. So thank you. And uh, Amy says hello. Thank you, John. Okay, guys, so don't forget that if you would like to get all the show notes for this episode, along with all of the links to everything that we talked about, the pictures that we talked about, you can find it all at doitscared.com slash episode 93. Once again, get all the show notes and links and pictures on our website at doitscared.com slash episode 93. And then while you're there, just remember to also take our fear assessment if you haven't done that to find out not just how fear might be holding you back, but what you can actually do about it once you understand exactly how it's showing up for you. And then before we go, I just want to say, as always, that I love hearing from you. So if you have any questions about what we talked about today or any other topics you'd like to see addressed on the Do It Scared podcast, anything for our quick wins episode, feel free to reach out either via email or just by messaging me on Instagram. And that about does it for this episode of the Do It Scared with Ruth Zuka podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. And if you liked what you heard, I would love it if you would post a review on iTunes. And then while you're there, you might as well subscribe to be notified of new episodes. And speaking of upcoming episodes, be sure to join me next week for another Get Ruthed coaching session because getting a business off the ground is never easy, but it's pretty amazing what can happen when you get a little outside perspective. And who knows, you might just catch a nugget that changes everything. So I will catch you then.